Welcome everyone to another Brain Fruits season episode um, for the season number three, where we focus on how to engineer the future. I'm sitting in South Africa right now, and I have the pleasure to do another virtual streaming with a guest from the US. So we're here a bit in different time zones. Um, but as you know, with Brain Fruits, we aim to give C executive women leaders in tech and finance the insight, tools, and tactics to shape the future. You can listen to Brain Fruits on all major streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. I'm your host, Hannah Becker, and it's a pleasure to introduce you today to Hilary Stevenson. She's an energy enthusiast with over a decade of experience and currently working as a senior advisor um, in the crude markets for Validera. She has over 200k followers on LinkedIn and loves to use clean data for a clear direction. Today, we're going to discuss strategies to achieve net zero, the key themes of our energy transition nowadays. Hilary, welcome to Brainfruits. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Happy to be here. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. It's great. <laughs> I love to do these recordings on, on uh, the end of the week. It just gives you another energy boost, I think. Can you tell us a little bit about your love for clean data and passion for crude markets? Yeah, it's it sounds a little bit weird, but um, I'm kind of a data nerd. I got my undergraduate degree in chemistry with a minor in math. So while a lot of my uh, peers were going off to pre-med, um, I started my career, but I had no idea that I was going to get into energy. Uh, but in my first job, I fell in love with refineries, which is kind of a weird thing to say. Not many people have a passion for refineries. Um, but I was really fascinated about how refineries are essentially a huge chemistry experiment that just sort of like distill and rearrange hydrocarbons to extract like the most value out of crude oil and make all kinds of things that we use every day. So like a lot of people think about, oh, it's road fuels like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel. Um, but refineries also make the building blocks for plastic and polyester used in clothing. Um, it's really like a lot more than you might think. Uh, and the global crude market um, really runs on data, uh, supply and demand data, price data, volume data, quality data. Um, and my love for clean data stems from uh, compiling data sets to analyze what's going on in the market. So uh, early in my career, I spent a lot of time smashing together spreadsheets, um, you know, only to find out at the end that the counts don't match or it fails a logic test. And then you got to go back <laughs> and sort of like figure out like where that error was, was stemming from. Um, so yeah, I love a, I love a clean data set and I really appreciate all the hard work that goes into creating clean data. Um, and especially when that data is driving something as important as energy and energy decisions. So like, you know, when we think about access to energy and, and cheap, affordable energy has really helped us to advance the society, you know, enable technology and information sharing and, and just really lets us lead better lives. So, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about crude markets and, and clean data sets. I love the sound of clean data sets, especially when you tie it to decision making, something that I am personally also very, very passionate about. I mean, we all know we're not the best as humans to make data driven and sometimes also risk based decisions. So this is what we're going to focus on quite a bit today, also in our recording. But before we get into that, I just want to recap here a little bit on crude oil as a global commodity. 
now there's this huge ask and huge shift towards finding alternative green energy sources, but still oil plays an important role in the global economy. It's the fundamental driver. I think you touched upon that a little bit as well of oil prices, supply and demand. So this is where your love of data also comes in. The cost of extracting and producing oil is a really important factor that goes into um, that equation, of course. Oil demand itself is driven by everything from gasoline for cars and air train, uh, airline travel, as you mentioned, also goes into making plastic to even electrical generation. Crude markets, especially nowadays, seem to be asked to go on a diet in view of the energy transition. What's for lunch nowadays in the energy sector? Yeah, no, I, I I love this analogy because we talk a lot about like crude diets at refineries. And so uh, it's, a, it's a common sort of like market terminology. But if you think about it in terms of maybe like a three course lunch, um, the first course is a real focus on operational excellence and, and digitalization. So we, we may think about you know, extracting that crude oil or transporting it or, um, you know, either even uh, changing it at a refinery, there is more and more emphasis on doing that in a really efficient way. Um, I just wrote a paper on uh, sort of the ability for refineries to process more local crudes. And so it's sort of like a, like a farm to table sort of uh, thought where we're uh, really sort of like reducing those supply chains, making it a more circular economy so that, um, you know, you can and add more efficiency, uh, which is really being spurred by the digitalization of the data that, that surrounds all of that. Um, then sort of the second course is fuels of the future. Um, so, you know, you talked about like a lot of uh, emphasis on, on renewable fuels and uh, generating alternatives to maybe your, your petrochemical um, based feedstocks. Um, and, you know, sure, we know that we can make renewable fuels from soybeans or corn, um, but there's a lot of, um, you know, risk in, are we just shifting an energy crisis to a food crisis? Um, you know, and it's really energy intensive to grow crops. You have to have diesel, you know, a lot of times diesel powered farm equipment or petroleum based fertilizers. When we're thinking about the fuels of the future, people are also um, figuring out how to make road fuels from things like used cooking oil or animal tallow, biomass, and then there's even emergent te technologies on how to create gasoline from carbon dioxide. I, I'm not sure how they're going to do that at scale. I but... have not heard about that one at all. Yeah, I think uh, it's like a Microsoft-based company, one, 1. 1.5, which is a really cute company name. Um, but yeah, there's like, you know, all kinds of different innovations on how to create the fuel, fuel of the future. Um, and regardless of whatever feedstock it is, if we're using soybean oil or corn oil or animal fat, um, all of those feedstocks do still need to be refined and processed before they can just go straight into, into your gas tank or into your jet engine. So there will still be a need for uh, part of the supply chain that exists, just shifting to um, potentially some additional and newer feedstocks. Um, and then lastly, so third course meal, right? Like we have to have dessert. Right? You can't have a good meal without dessert. So um, <laughs> the last uh, sort of like lunch item I would think about is the carbon markets. So as we talk about the energy transition, as we talk about net zero, essentially people are generating credits and buying credits. Um, and that is a huge um, market and area for innovation. You know, you have plant-based sequestration, which is like 
growing trees or, or planting hemp. Uh, you have direct air capture, which is just like, um, you know, collecting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and condensing it and storing it. Or, you know, even like sustainable farming practices that, you know, allow more um, carbon dioxide to be sequestered into the soil. So, uh, yeah, carbon markets is, is a huge emerging area that um, the you know, industry is looking at. Wow, I think other than if I would be, you know, a seven course type of gourmet person, this doesn't sound like a heavy diet to me at all, actually. So it sounds like there is a lot of potential and it's like a very tasty menu, I must say. Um, I'm especially fond of the dessert when we talk about the carbon credits and also the trade of those. It's a very interesting uh, market in itself. But before we go on to talk a bit more about the challenges to approaching the energy transition as a um, like as a particular player in the carbon markets, I want to just highlight here that what you've said about the three course menu is actually also reflected in numbers because we can see that the total value of that menu, so of global carbon markets, grew by over 20% in 2020 and 2021. So that's a um, another consecutive year of record growth. And then you talked a little bit upon um, already what it means to be in a compliant carbon market. I also refer to it as CCM, I think. That's like all the markets where it's uh, made mandatory by national, regional or international regimes of trade to regulate the carbon allowances. So this plays a really increasing visible role in efforts to reduce carbon emissions. I think that goes really well into the dessert conversation here. What is the biggest challenge to approaching the energy transition as a player in the carbon markets from your perspective? The carbon market uh, grew to a over $1 billion industry in 2021. And so like, who knows what will happen year in 2022, but is a huge market and it seems like everywhere you look um you know there's a green sticker or it's a net zero product um and most of the time that means that carbon credits have been purchased in the voluntary market to make those claims um and it's really important that those credits that are generated are high quality and they're really doing what they're saying that they're, they're doing so um you know in case you're not really uh educated in the carbon market it's a carbon credit is equal to removing one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent from the atmosphere. Um, so you may be removing carbon dioxide, you may be removing nitrous oxide, methane, whatever the case may be, we just sort of uh, normalize it to a, a ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. So convert it up to a CO2 molecule, one ton of that is one credit. Uh, on the market. And we really think about um, high quality credits with five criteria. Um, so those five criteria are additionality, measurability, permanence, avoid leakage, and verification. Um, so when you think about like, I can go into those a little bit. So like additionality means that like you weren't already doing it. Uh, so it has to be additional on an, a new initiative on top of your sort of business as normal in order to calculate that credit. Um, I think about a good example is, is sustainable farming. Um, sustainable farming, you can sequester carbon into the soil by planting cover crops or doing you know, no-till or, or low-till low um, cropping. 
Well, if you were already doing that, then you can't claim that you're generating credits. I think both of those practices will sequester like a third a ton a year an acre. Um, so there is an opportunity to generate credits, but if you're already doing it, it's hard to baseline and measure, that sort of takes us into the second one, measure like what it was before so you can measure how much additional carbon dioxide was, was captured. And then it also needs to be permanent. So, uh, you know, we see a lot of, uh, like in the Inflation Reduction Act, we are incentivizing carbon uh, storage. Uh, a lot of times that's underground in, in salt aquifers or in uh, old oil and gas rigs. Well, we need to make sure that there's not going to be any um, leakage of that uh, carbon dioxide sequestered or a good example is you know a lot of people are familiar with planting trees to generate carbon credits well like what happens if that forest goes up in a forest fire then like mm. now it's basically undone <laughs> the permanence <laughs> of the carbon that was sequestered in the tree in the first place uh and then leakage you might say, oh, well, Hillary, like leakage is the same thing as permanence, but it, it really is sort of thinking about what is the net, um, you know, energy in order to, to sequester that carbon or remove that ton of CO2 equivalent from the atmosphere. So a good example is there's a lot of direct air capture. We talked about that earlier technology on people figuring out how to, um, you know, capture the CO2 from the air and then, and then condense it. Um, well, a lot of the times those processes are really energy intensive. And so if you're capturing the carbon dioxide and you're storing it, but the energy that you need to, um, to do that process is creating more emissions that you're, then you're uh, removing in the first place, then that's not, that, that's not really helping. Um, it's not net, net positive. Um, you know, a lot of times direct air capture, we've seen good um, examples using geothermal power. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a really good um, electricity source to, to run those kind of processes. You wouldn't probably want to do that if your electricity was from like a coal-powered pow coal power plant. Um, so yeah, it's just good to look at your net uh, sort of uh, energy uh, input when you're looking at carbon credit quality and verification. I was not personally aware that the requirements to be able to have this type of carbon credits or to even be able to call it a carbon credit are that high. And now as an industry player in the carbon market, one of the things on top of my mind would probably be how can I plan for tomorrow in light of this dynamic nature of, of the markets and the technology coming along, but also in view of quite complex um, requirements. You've talked a little bit in one of your articles about phases of energy transition. And I always like to first start with these type of questions to kind of see where we at at the moment. Where did we come from? Where we at in order to be able to say where we're coming? So this is your article. I really loved it. I must say, I can really encourage everyone to read it. It really touches upon like the first phase, which is about awareness. It's a period where stakeholders building alignment and what is actually important for the first phase so like things like should humanity make net zero a priority yes or no how fast do we want to achieve it what's the timeline so it's really about like finding your okrs almost like the objective key results right and then it's yes. all about like exploration so this reminded me i love it so much because it reminded me so much about 
what you would see in a product life cycle. You know, you first have the exploration phase, the awareness phase, where you ask the question, what do we want to achieve? By when do we want to achieve it? Who are the stakeholders here? And then you go into discovery or how you call it exploration, which is a lot about goals. So for example, you want to have, I don't know, a reduction um, of emissions by, let's say, 1.5% or something. You then go into the exploration phase. So how can we get there? Then you go into execution, which is, I think, as the name kind of says, the final phase where you have a clear mandate for, for change and you can take concrete steps to address them. Where are we at at the moment? And how do I know, test and implement the right energy transition strategy for my company in the phase that we're in right now? Yeah, yeah. No, I love those th three phases. Uh, the, the founder of my company, Dr. Ian Burgess, sort of like coined the phase zero, phase one, phase two that you just described. And I think for oil and gas specifically, we are uh, definitely in sort of that exploration phase where everyone is sort of testing out, like, how, how do I do this? What, can I make sure I get an ROI on my initiative? Um, is it at the end of the day actually reducing my emissions? Maybe I think that it's going to, and, and it and it doesn't as much as I thought. Or you know, everything is always changing, and different methodologies and different reporting, um, different regulations are coming in into play, um, and different you know monetary incentives to do different things. So it's definitely in the sort of like exploration phase, and I think we will you know once we see where the market really coalesces on like, okay, we have tested this, we've tried it out, then we can move into the execution phase and, and have a real, uh, you know, winner and start to sort of deploy that at scale and, and get uh, some of the, you know, maybe industry laggards on board with, uh, with what we've, you know, found to be successful. But like, if you, like, that's for oil and gas, right? If, mm. if you think about it general, generalized for like, just a, a regular company, um, I can kind of like distill it down into some steps that we've seen work well in the oil and gas like exploration phase. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to take an inventory of all of your emission sources. I, the energy transition is all about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We talked about, you know, CO2E. So in order for you to reduce them, you have to know what you have. Um, and a lot of times it's really, people honestly don't know what they have in, in really, um, you know, minute detail, like, oh, you know, this uh, building is running on heating oil, or this one is running on propane, or, oh, my assembly line, um, you know, is inefficient, and it, it, you know, produces these emissions. And so really going through and, and, and with a fine uh, tooth comb going through and making that inventory um, of all of your emission sources, that's the first step. Then once you know what you have, you can baseline and benchmark. And so you sort of like, okay, here's what I have. Now I can try different initiatives to try to reduce that. Um, and I can also compare myself to my peers. Like maybe it turns out that, um, you know, my inventory is like all, you know, really very, very new. Um, it has very low emissions and I'm actually better than, than you know, the person next to me um, and, and my competitor. Um, then the key is to figure out how to reduce those emissions. So of course, once you figure out like, cool, here's my emissions total, you could just go out into the voluntary market and buy those credits to, you know, negate out your emissions profile. Um, but as we talked about, you know, you want to make sure that you have a really high quality uh, carbon credit if you're going to use that. But 
really the name of the game is reducing emissions. And so if you can reduce your emissions from that initial baseline, the less credits you're going to need to buy, the better for the planet it's going to be for everyone. So, um, you know, figuring out where you can reduce those emissions, maybe you can modernize your equipment, maybe you can reduce driving or you know, incentivize carpooling or public transit for your workforce. Um, you know, any any small step helps. Uh, you know, switching to greener electricity um, or installing vapor recovery or sequestering carbon in, in some you know manufacturing industries. Maybe that's not an option for everyone, but um, you know, really uh, consider each thing and and is it um, profitable to reduce emissions for each of those different different spots. Um, and like, I guess I'll give an example from oil and gas. So uh, essentially companies are doing that, going through making their plan. And then we see in the news a lot about these like drone and satellite surveys that are flying over and sort of uncovering where all the, the sneaky emissions may be coming from. That is an excellent way to, uh, to sort of check yourself every year. That's like your rinse and repeat um, reset. So I made a plan, I tried some initiatives, I get my annual survey and great, it's lower than it was last year. Or like, oh no, I did all these things and now it's higher. So kind of like back to the drawing board to figure out um, you know, new things to try and implement to sort of get that annual check lower and lower. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor, right? If you're sick, you may go to the doctor a lot, like, you know, very often. And then hopefully, uh, you know, you are maintaining uh, your health and they can just go every year for your sort of like annual checkup and make sure everything is running great. And just to recap here, I mean, I think it's so vital to know about these these steps because it's so actionable, as you say, you know, taking inventory, going in whatever system you use, Excel, whatever, just noting down what areas you have of leakage or even of contribution and then maybe prioritizing it towards what has the highest emissions and starting to figure out strategies to reduce that. And always, of course, keeping yourself accountable, testing um, by what degree you have actually been successful to achieve your targets. So I really love these these insights from your side. Now, you talk a lot about also in your papers that these type of reduction projects must be guided by facts and like having a top down and bottom up approach, both probably in leadership, but also when we talk about data. What are some of the myths that you can tell us about that make it much more difficult to actually implement or to actually even propose carbon reduction projects? One great example is uh, we saw this Stanford study where, um, and, and it compares to traditionally in oil and gas, how you report your emissions is based on emission factors. Like you just say, Great, I have these equipment. This equipment means this number. I add it up, I report it to the government, I carry on about my day. But that is literally just counting up a numbers of things and not measuring what the reality is of those things at all. It does not account for unplanned events. It doesn't account for the forest fire or the you know major leak event. Um, it's just a, a number associated with the things that you have. And when you compare that sort of like uh, paper accounting approach to the Stanford study, which looked at that sort of like aerial flyover of, you know, total emissions. So if you take total paper emissions and you compare it to total um, detected emissions, the detected emissions were like 
two times higher. Um, and not only was like the number different, but mm -hmm. when you sort of like segregate, like, okay, well, where are these emissions coming from? Is it coming from flares? Is it coming from tanks? Is it coming from these things called pneumatic devices? Well, your paper accounting said, oh, it's these pneumatic devices they are the they are the the you know the bad apple we really need to to modernize and electrify those things um, and that will really uh you know have a material impact but when you look at the source from the stanford study it is actually tanks um and volatile emissions coming out of storage tanks that you know constituted more of that pie than the pneumatic devices and so you know if you were just using that paper counting you might spend a lot of money to reduce uh, your pneumatic devices, but really you should have spent your money on, on you know, vapor recovery on your tanks. So it's a great example of where data can be misleading. Um, and really we need to have like, me like true measurement data to base yeah. our decisions on. I think there's also a great uh, call for action maybe to read that paper. So we'll try to put it in the show notes because it sounds like a super interesting study. Can you yeah. give us a few examples of um, successful companies or leaders having achieved to implement an energy transition initiative? And I think you've already touched a lot about uh, what's the role of, of clean data, but maybe you can just recap on what that actually means in this context. So two two good examples. So we, you know, we talked about reducing emissions is one of the options is uh, sourcing greener electricity. Um, so, you know, I think it was uh, early in 2021 where Energier, which is a uh, utility in Canada, wanted to source, um, you know, responsibly developed natural gas to feed their power plants and to provide their, their consumers with, with greener electricity. And they were able to partner with a gas producer, Pacific Cambrian, that um, is really like an industry leader in um, how to produce natural gas with really low emissions. They've, they've gone through the steps and sort of proven that their, their emissions are uh, really at the lower end, best in class. So that's one example where, you know, utility is buying directly gas um, that has been verified and certified as, as being low emission. Um, and then on the crude side, Occidental um, is uh, pairing their crude oil production with one of their carbon capture products uh, projects to essentially create a net zero crude. So they're already sort of uh, matching up that credit and emissions um, in, in providing a product that has already sort of been zeroed out um, before it gets to the rest of the supply chain. So those are two like specific examples, but then more broadly, we've seen participation in OGMP 2.0, which is alphabet soup. That's the um, Oil and Gas Methane Partnership. It's a UN initiative. Um, where companies like BP, Total, Equinor, uh, and like 80 more companies have agreed to participate in a reporting framework that provides accuracy and transparency into methane emissions data for oil and gas. And so it's, it's really um, using measurement like we, we saw in the Stanford study to ensure that we have the best base case data, actionable and transparent data, so that we can get to, to reducing from, from reality. And that's, that's, really where data comes in, right? Um, in order to verify or even calculate um, or measure emissions in the first place, companies have to collect and analyze massive amounts of data. And, and you know, the cleaner the data, the better. Think about they're matching up their geospatial data with their mm -hmm. quality and volume data, 
weather data, they have to convert units and convert time zones um, and all of that, you know, making sure that the source data is also really high quality and not, and not prone to errors. Um, so like, you know, that's a big challenge, but it's great to see so many companies um, joining that initiative so that, you know, we can sort of avoid some of the, the phase one energy transition uh, risks, which is risk of greenwashing. So, mm. you know, if you, you know, the proof is in the pudding or the proof is yeah. in the numbers, or if you have the numbers to back it up, then um, it's a lot more defensible than um, just sort of like broad claims. And making this pudding, I have the greatest respect for this data engineering uh, part, I think, because that is really can be quite a, hideous in some in some cases you say like matching up different um data sources spatial data and then you also refer to different time zones so it's quite a task to to do and then you have always this risk of course that if something is off you will make your decisions based on data that was off so we always want to ensure that the the putting is actually um nice and clean and tastes good i think at the end yeah um, now, we talked a lot about the energy transition itself, the strategies to implement an energy transition where we are um, as an industry when we talk about um, achieving the sustainable development goals. What has been the biggest challenge for you personally to get stakeholders to care about the energy transition? Yeah, so I think like kind of like two challenges. So the first um you know is is in line with those those three phases. A lot of people don't want to do experimentation. They just want to wait for the for the you know regulation. They're like, "No, I don't want to waste my time figuring out what to do. I'll just wait for the government to tell me what to do." Um but really in my opinion, the more industry participants we have involved in that experimentation, like that's how we're going to figure out what is the best solution and what's the most efficient market mechanism that we can, um, you know, probably have regulation em emulate. So we need more participants to do more experiments and give their sort of uh, feedback and input into what, you know, future regulations might look like instead of just, um, you know, uh, allowing governments to make that choice for the industry. Uh, and then the second, like, you know, it's kind of an unpopular opinion, but a lot of uh, in consumers like to say or like to think that like, oh, my individual contribution is doesn't matter. You know, it's really mm -hmm. these big companies that are, you know, you know, that's where we can really move the needle. Um, but you know, the biggest portion of oil and gas emissions is not related to exploration or drilling or, or refining or any of that. It's the end use combustion in vehicles. And so <laughs> I guess like cue Taylor Swift, like it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. I'm um, <laughs> like us driving our cars is the problem. Um, I mean, it's not just driving cars. Like we need to put our money where our mouths is uh, like, you know, buy that greener electricity. If it's on offer to you, um, buy a hybrid, uh, you know, even when I was Amazon shopping for Christmas, I could see the little like, oh, this ship's local or choose fewer mm. packages. Um, you know, you can even, you know, we talked about farming, you can participate in a community um, supported agriculture, which, you know, is a, a smaller supply chain, more farm to table, reduces a lot of those transportation related emissions. So, you know, like everything helps. 
Um, and the more aware we are as consumers and the more we incentivize big companies to, um, you know, do those emission reduction initiatives, like the, the faster we're going to get to an energy transition. I always like to say that people, when it comes to success, they like to do this, but when it comes to, oh, it's someone's fault, it must be someone outside, but definitely not to me. So I like the reference to Tyler Swift, oh, it's actually me. Uh, so get on your bike and start cycling <laughs> instead of taking the car. I think it's a yes. great, this is a really great way to wrap up this podcast. And now we've heard about your success stories. You have shared amazing tools and tactics to start caring and implementing energy transition initiatives. What are some recommendations that you would have for our listeners who might be spearheading an energy transition project to get the company caring, but also to personally accelerate more towards net zero? Yeah, like not not to harp on it, but don't like be afraid to be a sustainability influencer. You know, like you, uh, every small thing happens. You know, every, well every small thing matters. Um, you know, you can ditch disposable cups, you can uh, reduce your fast fashion, like polyester is also a huge demand source for the petrochemical industry. And so if you're out there saying like down with big oil, but you're like wearing all fast fashion, like it's kind of like an oxymoron, um, you know, reduce your single use plastics, like everything that we know. Um, but, you know, you can also, I think we've talked a lot about data and another, um, you know, effort you can take is to make sure that your company is really making decisions based on data and measurement data and not just that sort of paper accounting of what you have. So, um measure and know what you have to make good decisions and then be a leader and influence others to do their part as a consumer. I like this narrative about being a sustainable influence, uh, influence. I think that's the only influence I would like to, to be personally. It sounds really, really important and gives a great sense of purpose because you're actually helping us accelerate to achieve the sustainable development goals with things like fashion so it's fun and it's so easy when you talk about you know disposable cups so you don't have to work in the crude markets or be an analyst or expert analyst or whatever you are but it's always about your individual choice as a consumer last question um where can listeners learn more about you and find you hillary yeah so I, I'm on LinkedIn and you can also read uh, that three phases blog and a lot more really great thought leadership uh, from me and my team at my company website, uh, valadier.com. There's a blog, there's webinars, there's lots of good information. So if you're interested in the energy transition, uh, make sure to check it out. I will personally do that again as well, um, just because I want my company to care much more about ESG risk. So I will go back to the Valadair uh, website and check out some of the blogs. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It was a great pleasure to talk to you. I learned so much today about the crude markets. Yeah, awesome, Hannah. It was great to meet you and great to chat today. Thanks for having me.